Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. First, a disclaimer. Yeah, so we have a very large team. What we do is sort of different from a university. We assemble a very large team. Here's my team, 330 people, focused on a few very large projects. These are all cellular-based in the mouse and the human so we do large-scale single-cell transcriptomics in postmortem tissue, human tissue in neurosurgical-derived tissue, in embryonic tissue, compare the electrophysiology, the morphology, the single-cell transcriptomics, and doing the same in mice, and then we build these large-scale uh, brain observatory. I'm not going to talk about this, although some of it is directly relevant, because we can compare in detail the single-cell transcript- transcription profiles uh, and the EFIS and the morphology um, of um, uh, of human cells derived from different sources, i.e. post-mortem, neurosurgical tissue, fetal tissue, and uh, pluripotent stem cell. And then in terms of reference, I'm not going to um, provide a lot of reference because this book just came out last week with um, um, MIT Press. So I'm just going to focus on the, on the topic that I've been given, namely, how would we know if consciousness emerged, can consciousness emerge in cerebral organoids, and how would we know? So let's go to the only source of consciousness that we know of, which is ourselves, right? As uh, Perrine Descartes, Cogito Agosom. So the only thing we know for certain is that we exist because we are conscious. And if you've ever watched The Matrix, you can see The Matrix. In, you know, in fact, uh, Alison showed a picture from the from the, the real state of affairs. So in reality, Neo, you know, is housed in these uh, brain farms, but what he imagines to be is, um, is in the modern world, in the contemporary world. Now, of course, he's deluded, but the fact he has conscious experiences is undeniable and means that that's the only way he knows um, he exists. And, of course, this also comes prior to physics and, and chemistry and biology, right? The only thing I've directly access to uh, is not the physics, is not elementary particles and brains and viruses and black holes, but the only thing I have direct access to is my own conscious experience. So what, what most people mean, but not all, of course, uh, mean by consciousness is just any, any subjective experience. So here you're looking at a painting, or I'm, I'm looking out at you, or you're hearing my sort of Germanic flavor that uh, might remind you of your previous governor, uh, your German, my Germanic-flavored uh, voice in your head, those are all different conscious experiences. You can also remember them, you can imagine them, you can uh, maybe tonight you're going to fall asleep, and then inside your sleeping body you'll wake up and you have experiences. We call, that, uh, we call those dreams, and they occur in a particular type of uh, brain state. Then there's a subset of all experience. It's really just a subset of all experience that refer directly to self. Right, so I know... I'm conscious, I can introspect, I can think about myself, I can think what I had for breakfast, I can project myself forward, I know there's going to be a day when I don't exist anymore, etc., etc. Notice that self-consciousness is just a subset of the vast class of all conscious experiences. Uh, Literary people tend to emphasize those. Uh, I'm not sure that necessarily uh, emphasizes their, uh, their happiness. Um, because most of the time when we're engaged with the world, when we're really, you know, when we're running up there in the trails, when we're making love, when we're watching an engaging movie, uh, when you're meditating, when you're, you know, playing squash, or in all those, uh, all those activities you're engaged with the world, and that inner voice that constantly sort of shadows you and reminds you of all your inadequacy and the deadlines you've, you're, you know, that are coming up, is, uh, is completely silenced. So, the, 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 so these are all different conscious experiences. So uh, I use and I talk in great detail and with Francis Crick, in fact, we, we, we've written about this. So we, 
uh, sentience, awareness, consciousness, subjectivity, from our point of view, um, all refers to the same thing. Namely, all these things have phenomenal experience. It, in the famous word of Thomas Nagel, it feels like something to, uh, to, um, and to be conscious. Although at any uh, particular point in time, subjects can only report a very small subset of all our experiences. So this is a distinction that Nat Block introduced, the philosopher Nat Block introduced, the difference between access consciousness and phenomenological consciousness. So, you know, I have this vast description uh, that, that I see, the, this vast, very rich image that I see, but if you ask me in terms of button presses, you know, I, I can only typically sort of access uh, 7 plus minus 2 bits of information. What can we say for certain about consciousness, leaving aside any theory? I'll only mention theories at the, at the end. So consciousness seems to be associated with complex adaptive biological networks, at least so far. So we can tell particular central nervous system. It does not seem to be associated with all, as far as we can tell, with all complex adaptive nervous systems. So, for instance, the immune system, the acquired immune system, is a very complicated system. It has, um, it has of course, lifetime um, uh, memory. It has complicated processing. But as far as I don't have any conscious access to the working of my immune system. I arrived yesterday from Seattle. So it's a different immune environment. For all I know, my immune systems, my B cells and T cells, etc., are battling some local, you know, in some local virus here, I have no conscious awareness of that. Same thing with my, with my enteric nervous system. There are 200 million neurons down here. As far as I can tell, the only thing that I know about the state of my gut, for example, when I'm full or disintended or nauseated, is because of activity in my, in my insula. We know consciousness doesn't require behavior. I already mentioned one conscious state, namely the dreaming state, when you are paralyzed, in fact, by your body. Uh, there's an ataxia, uh, yet you're fully conscious. There are also a variety of clinical states, uh, a variety of catatonic states or other states when, when you are unable to move and paralyzed, yet you fully experience the world. We know consciousness doesn't require the emotions, particular strong emo um, emotions. You can, t uh, you can see this from uh, lab studies or you can see this from t talking with veterans who, let's say, have uh, you know, been in war in Iraq and Afghanistan and imp improvised explosive device took away some of their legs and maybe injured their brain. They may have a complete flat affect. They clearly sort of lost, lost most of the effective modulation of their voice. Um, yet they, you know, they're fully conscious of their, um, you know, they can tell you whether they're hungry and what they're seeing and what they're hearing, etc. We know that selective visual attention, but this is uh, something I studied for many years um, while at Caltech. So selective attention, particular visual attention, can occur without consciousness. So it seems paradoxical, but it's true, it's widely accepted now in psychophysics. You can attend to things, you can selectively process regions or objects in visual space without seeing them, without becoming conscious of them. It remains more controversial whether consciousness requires attention. Um, in other words, can you be conscious without attention? Francis Crick, and I, well, he thought so and I think so, but not everybody agrees with that in the field. We know consciousness doesn't require language, nor self-consciousness, uh, as I mentioned before. Uh, of course, it's vastly enriched by language. There's no question about it. But um, pre-linguistic competent children, we consider them uh, uh, conscious. Once you had a stroke, you're, you're clearly still conscious. We now have individuals. Some of them you can see at TED, uh, TED Talks that had a stroke and then report having you know, very vivid particular type of experiences that lack certain aspects while they're ataxic and unable to, uh, to talk. It's not that suddenly they, 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 they turn into, into, into zombies. We also know from, from, from clinic, 
from uh, patients that have lost access to long-term memory, for instance, due to encephalitis or surgery, bilateral medial temporal lobe, that consciousness does not require long-term memory. We know from, uh, from Sperry's experiments at Caltech that consciousness can occur in a single cerebral hemisphere. It doesn't require both hemispheres. And we know from 150 years of functional neurology, starting with Broca himself, of course, you may have read, you're probably all familiar with Oliver Sacks, he talks about this very eloquently, that destruction of particular region of cortex, and this is important, it's particular region of cortex seem to go hand in hand with particular loss of classes of visual, uh, uh, classes of percept. So you can have a lesion here, let's say in MT, you're unable to see motion. You can have a lesion in a related part of the extra side cortex, you're unable to see these things in color. Um, so there's specific um, loss of conscious classes that are associated with specific loss of cortical regions. So, you know, more than uh, oh, donkey years ago, uh, I used to come down here regularly and work with uh, Francis just down here in his office facing the, the west on the second floor of the Salk Institute. And sort of we initiated the, sort of the modern phase of looking for consciousness using the, the entire repertoire of modern tools that we have, like fMRI, EG, MEG, ECOG, single cell, and in humans, in patients, I mean in normal human subjects, in patients, as well as in, in animals. And that's a search for the, what we call the minimal neuronal mechanisms that are jointly sufficient for any one conscious per, um, percept. So, for instance, there is going to be some set of mechanisms in your brain that are specifically responsible or that, that are coextensive with hearing my voice. And what, what, what are those? And how do they differ from when you hear the voice of somebody else? Or what happens when you, you know, how do they differ from the, the how do the, the, the neural uh, mechanisms differ when you see something versus not seeing it, although it's present on your retina? Or seeing, you know, motion versus seeing color versus seeing stereo? Are they in a particular brain region? Do they activate a particular type of, sub, um, uh, uh, of, uh, of cell types characterized by particular transcription factors, uh, you know, projecting to a particular part of the brain involving a particular neurotransmitter, all those sorts of questions. For every conscious percept, there will be, um, there will be a neural correlate of consciousness. That's what they're called today, NCC. And inducing these NCCs artificially, be that, for example, using optogenetics in animals or using an, a surgeon's electrode or a TMS device or, you know, what, whatever technology there is, will induce this percept, the, the subject will, will experience that percept. Conversely, removing that, inactivating that NCC, again, using optogenetics or using some other technique, uh, uh, like, again, for example, repetitive TMS, will eliminate uh, that class of experience, although the physical stimulus may still be present in the, in the world. So this is now, a, uh, so this is, for example, a typical 30 years later. It's gotten very refined, this search. This is from a review article. So, for instance, here, you present subjects, for very, here they're lying inside a magnetic scanner, but the principle holds for any other um, um, experimental instrumentation. So you're, you have human subject, they're looking at this image on the left. It's, it's a noisy image, sort of, you know, pattern gray and white, and you can see a face. You can see it now because it's on the screen, but if I only flash it for 100 milliseconds, sometimes you see it and sometimes you don't. So the physical input is always the same, but sometimes you have this conscious percept of face, 
And sometimes, in fact, if you do it properly, half the time you see a faith, half the time you don't see any, well, you don't see a faith. It's not that you see nothing, but you, you know, all you see is something that's very difficult to describe. Most people say it's fog or it's noise or something like that. And so now you can collect all the cases when you saw the face, you can look at the neural signature of that, and you can comp- uh, contrast that against all the cases when you didn't see um, the, 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 and the face. And so you can identify here in this cartoon version at the bottom, you can identify the, the, uh, the regions that are specifically active when you're constantly seeing a face. And that's exercise cortex, fusiform gyrus, and in some aspects of prefrontal cortex. But now, of course, you have to control is this attention or is this consciousness? Because those are two different things. And so you have to sort of do control experiments to rule out that this is not just the, 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 the footprints of attention, but actually the footprints of consciousness. Then is it due to the fact that I'm pressing button? That's a motor response. Is it due to the fact that I'm in a task? Right? So here I'm being given a particular task. I've got to remember the task instruction. And so you have to control for all these things. And people are doing that. Now, this is a point that, that Francis and I particular always emphasized, and that's um, very difficult to distinguish in a clinic, particular, let's say, in an emergency room. You have to distinguish the physical consti- constituents of consciousness from the background or, or enabling factors that have to be present for you to be conscious at all. So, for instance, we know if my carotis artoid are cut off for even 10 seconds, if somebody chokes me, within 10 seconds, we lose consciousness. It's, a, it's an adaptive response. It's very quick. 7, 8, 9, 10, 12 seconds, we faint. We lose consciousness. But that doesn't mean that, the, that blood or oxygen in the blood is a, is a physical constituent. It's necessary to enable consciousness. Same thing, we know there's roughly... Uh, 40 different uh, nuclei, 40 on the left, 40 on the right, um, different sort of uh, uh, cell type population within what's sort of broadly called the ascending reticular system. Now people look much closer and probably by transcriptional means there are probably more than three to 400 different types, transcriptional defi- uh, defined cell types here. They all have a distinct, uh, you know, cytoarchitectonics. Um, and they project, in general, these factors are, are necessary for you to maintain consciousness, to maintain uh, tone, to man- uh, maintain arousal, to maintain, for example, regular sleep-wake cycle, and then, of course, to, mo- uh, to modulate body temperature, thermoregulation, cardiac, um, etc., etc. So we know that if you have lesion here, particular bilateral, although they may be only the size of a, of a uh, you know, uh, less than a cubic centimeter, d- d- lesions down here typically are very bad for you, and you might uh, end up in coma or in a persistent vegetative states. But those are not the factors that actually give rise. They don't provide any content, if you want to think about it that way. These things need to be intact. If they're not, you're not conscious. But even though intact and your cortex is destroyed, we know this again from clinical cases. So if your brainstem, if your, um, you know, the pons and the, the, the midbrain and medulla is intact, but your cortex is destroyed, for example, by carbon uh, monoxide poisoning or something else, then again, you don't experience anything. All right, so as far as we can tell from all the last 150 years of uh, clinical experience in particular um, um, uh, and uh, lesion studies and some uh, more modern uh, imaging studies, it's really cortical tissue that, that seems to, in human, in normal, in normal developed human, it seems to be cortex that gives rise to any one conscious experience. So this two-dimensional, two-plus epsilon dimensional tissue, you know, it's pretty much like my sweater. It's... It's, um, it's two to three millimeter thick, and it's roughly this size, like a pizza. And you've got two of them, one here, one here, and they give rise to 
all that we are. All of our memories, all of our traits, all, all thoughts and desire, all of our experiences arise from this cortical tissue. And so people are studying it uh, forever in great detail. Um, so I'm not going to go through the evidence. I teach an entire class on this. So the, the, the type of evidence, first of all, is causal. There's very strong evidence from, from clinical practice, depending on which lesion people have. So for instance, I, I, had, a, I had a colleague who passed away. On the day he was assigned his medical, he was MD-PhD, his medical residency, he learned he had a large-scale tumor. They removed a three by three by four centimeter piece of his cerebellum. Okay, that's roughly 20% of his cerebellum was removed, which is roughly 18% of all the cells in his brain. And as is typical, if you t I talk to him, if, as is typical for these patients, their main deficit seems to be, their main deficit seems to be, um, for instance, they can't speed type anymore on their phone. He was an accomplished piano player. He can't do that anymore. But his experience seem to be unchanged. He still has the same experience of self. He sees, still sees the world, has the same emotional re reaction to the world, etc. So it tells us some bits and pieces are much more critically involved than others. And from this from these uh, causal experiment, we, a particular lesion experiment, we know it's cortex, particularly the posterior back part of cortex that's critical. From stimulation studies, again, the, the, in, in a neurosurgical context, particularly in functional neurosurgery, there's a massive amount of electrical stimulation that's done, so you can directly excite the neural tissue and see which one is eloquent, which one is not eloquent, which one is directly, is, is, uh, seems to directly, whose activity directly gives rise to specific conscious percepts. Again, that's uh, cortex, particularly the middle temporal lobe and the, uh, the, uh, the posterior hot zone. Um, out the um, uh, prefrontal cortex is by and large silent. It's non-eloquent cortex once you go in front of uh, premotor cortex. And then more, um, and more recently from, um, and from um, recording studies in either in patients or in non-human primates or in, in um, neuroimaging studies in, in humans. So I'm not going to go through the evidence, but we did. So all the evidence shows that certainly for the best form study uh, forms of consciousness, which is visual consciousness, auditory consciousness, somatosensory consciousness, and the initiation of will. It's quite a bit of particular new, interesting neurosurgical work done on, on volition the, and the feeling of, uh, of agency seems to involve a broad set of regions in, in, um, in cortex. Now, we also know, uh, particularly since Hans Berger discovered these brain waves in the 1920s in, in Frankfurt, about the neurophysiological correlates of consciousness. We know, so here you can see this is from a, from a very old book, uh, a classical uh, book by, by Jaspers and, and Penfield, different conscious states such as being excited, being relaxed, being asleep, uh, and then of course there are two different forms of sleep, REM and, and non-REM sleep. So different states of consciousness are related to distinct neuronal electrical signature. And this is now where it becomes relevant to, to the topic of the day. So what we can do, here you, you see me undergoing this, uh, this experience. Um, people have devised, particularly the group around Giulio Tononi and Marcello Massimi, who's a neurologist in, in Italy, have devised um, an experimental test to measure for the presence or absence of consciousness in, in human subject, although now it's being tested also in, in animals, because in principle it should work anybody, um, 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 any organism that has a large sort of uh, a, a cortex, certainly. So the idea is there's many, uh, there are two groups of patients where you're not clear about their, their consciousness, their 
uh, whether anybody's home. One set of them is uh, anesthesia. We all know there's a subset of patients for a variety of reasons. Very often it's, uh, it relates to obesity. But there's a subject of patients where you're never sure they're truly anesthetized or they're just paralyzed because in a modern uh, anesthesiological practice, you give a cocktail of agents. Some paralyze you, some sedate you, some uh, some control your your sympathetic system. So you're never fully sure uh, whether the patient is conscious or is not. Right now, we have only very crude measures like the BIS. It doesn't really work very well by spectral index to measure right now in this patient in front of me, who I'm operating on, is the patient experience anything or not? The second group of patients, they're probably on the order of at least 10,000 of such patients here in the U.S., a patient who's in a severely neurological impaired. So this could be classical, um, for example, trauma, uh, drugs, alcohol, um, viruses, um, etc. Et you may, some of you may remember Terry Schiavo in the in the in the 90s. So these are patients who are what's called in a persistent vegetative state. So they, they're, uh, they're not in coma, certainly not coma. Uh, they open their eyes, they close their eyes, their EG sometimes is flat, but sometimes it's not, but it's very, um, it's quite irregular. Uh, and it's very unclear, I mean, a clinical practice, if you do sort of glaucoma, uh, uh, scale and, and, um, or it's modified scale tells you that they don't respond at all, neither to eye blink nor, nor, nor uh, you know, hand nor anything else. So, but are they truly, are they truly unconscious? Because some indications show that maybe up to 20% of these patients are misdiagnosed. Then you have patients that are, that can have occasional, um, ways to communicate their consciousness um, to you, but it's very um, uneven. These are called MCS, minimal conscious state, and they can be in a very disabled state, MCS minus or MCS plus, so their gradation within this, where they can communicate occasionally with you, for instance, by moving their eyes or by groaning or by, you know, twitching or, or something like that. It could also be late-stage ALS, uh, same problem. Locked-in uh, patients that are highly conscious, but they're completely unable or maybe only can move their uh, vertical eye movements, like the, the, the French editor of L who wrote uh, The Butterfly and The Diving Bell. Um, so there's a variety of, um, of patients patient with catatonia where you're not sure because they just don't respond at all for hours at a time whether there's anybody home. So um, this is a measure, so it essentially looks at how differentiated and how integrated uh, uh, is the EG response. So um, it, it, it sort of makes this underlying assumption that because our conscious experience is highly differentiated, right, I have a very, very particular experience right now, which is very different from anything else I've ever seen in my life or heard or smelled or seen or otherwise experienced. It's also integrated, right? It's not that this is a bunch of individual things. It's a single, holistic, uniform thing um, that I'm currently experiencing. So the underlying neural correlate, the underlying physical signature of that should reflect that. So we should have a brain activity that's maximally integrated and differentiated. And you can measure that. So the way it's done here, you apply a TMS pulse to a cortex, particular to mid-lighting structures. And you do this 50, 100 times to average out the, the, the stochastic variation. And then, you know, you measure it, let's say, using 64, 128, or 256 EG uh, sensor net. And you can sort of, you get this movie, time versus all the different locations. And you can then compress that. You can essentially ask mathematically. It's done using the lempel ziff the Lempel-Ziff um, complexity algorithm. It's the same one that you use on your laptop when you zip a file. 
It's the same, it's the same mathematical operation. And so this thing def uh, defines a number called uh, perturbational complexity index between 0 and 1. 0, this movie is completely compressible. So that would be the case of flat line. If you have a truly, let's say, a dead, um, a dead patient, you know, with, with truly flat EG, that's maximally compressible, it's only one number. Or, um, so it, it, it's bounded by 1. And so you can, um, you can measure that. So here you can do it. You know, this is in my case. So this is when you are awake. You can do the same thing when you sleep, where the response is actually bigger, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's short-term and it's much less uh, complex. And so you can then derive, you can do this in all these patients. It's, it's published now in a variety of papers, and there's a large-scale, several large-scale clinical trials of this uh, called ZAP and ZIP. ZAP because you use a TMS and ZIP because you compress it. Uh, there are clinical trials going on at UCLA, at Harvard, at Carolina, and in, um, in Madison, in Genoa, and in other places where this is being done in a variety of patients, adult patients, now also moving to pediatric patients, both neurological and now also uh, psychiatric patients. So what you see here, this is in one of the studies, uh, several hundred subjects. So first you... Um, so here you just report on the x-axis are different subjects. In each subject, these are either volunteers or patients. You do it three times. Um, and then you pick, you, 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 um, and you give the patient the, the maximum amount of, of doubt. I'll come back to that. On the left, you plot on the uh, y-axis, you plot the perturbational complexity index. As I said, it's a number between 0 and 1. It's, it's, it's normalized. Zero means it's maximal complexity. There's just no complexity there whatsoever. One means it's maximal diverse. And then you can see, so, uh, so let's say if you take, um, if you take um, volunteers and they're in a, in, a REM, in, a, in a REM sleep and where you wake them up and you ask them, did anything um, go through your mind over the last, uh, you know, was anything in your mind when you randomly wake them up and it turns out they're non-REM, their complexity is low. Then you do that using three different types, in, in, again, in volunteers. These are anesthesiologists. You do this for three different types of, of anesthetics. Uh, barbiturate, um, uh, a gas, quinone, and propofol. You do it in, in REM. So now you take the same volunteers, and when you wake them up, they say, oh, yeah, you woke me up, and I just had this dream of uh, whatever it was, and the complexity is quite high. You do it on a ketamine, which is um, not really an anesthesia, but it's a dissociative agent. So if you take uh, a ketamine, not just at low doses where people abuse it as vitamin K, but at, at high doses, at uh, surgical level doses, it's a dissociative. You're clearly inside your mind that you're completely dissociated from the outside world. And, but you are conscious. The, the measure tells you you're high. Then this is just in, in everyday wakefulness in, in, um, in volunteers. The next category, LIS, that's locked-in state. So as far as we can tell, patients in locked-in state, they're unable to move, but they're fully conscious because typically cortex isn't impaired at all in their strokes. Um, and then there are various, um, various neurological patients that have various lesions that may affect them in various ways, but doesn't knock out their ability to experience. So it turns out, across all these different subjects, at the level of individual subject, you get a single number, a threshold, happens to be 0.31. There isn't really anything magical about threshold. It's just a, it's just a number, empirically determined, that with 100% sensitivity and 100% selectivity, in the cases where you have very strong evidence to show that either they are conscious or they're not conscious, this method works. So it's really pretty good. 
like I said, at the single cell, it's at this individual uh, subject level. So you can tell this patient right now, according to this measure, either has a high complexity in response to these um, these pulses or low complexity, and that seems to correlate perfectly with, with their being conscious or their being not conscious. And then you move into where it's more difficult to know because the, the clinical evidence is uh, very ambiguous, like MCS, a uh, minimal conscious state plus, where you're pretty sure that you are, they are conscious and the method tells you. Um, MCN uh, minus, where you have some evidence from the clinic that they're conscious and the method also works 100%. And then in the really most severe of all cases that are most severely impacted vegetative state, where clearly the method, uh, this method tells you, yes, in up to, in up to, you know, um, in a number 15 or so uh, percent, you know, nine out of 43 patients, although clinically you have no indication whatsoever that they are conscious, at least by, by using this measure of brain complexity, uh, you, you surmise that they are conscious, but they're unable to tell you that because they've lost access to their voluntary um, motor systems. So that's pretty cool. It's the first time that we have such a tool, and it's now being, as I said, experimental, and we are studying it in animals uh, with cortex, let's say, um, in rodents right now, and other people are getting ready to study that in, in, um, in monkeys. Now, what, what about cerebral organoids? Now, of course, we're measuring this in human skull, which is very large, as I said, you know, if you unfold one cortex, it's roughly 1,200 square, uh, 1200 square centimeters, so it's a very large volume. We're dead, doing it at the Allen Institute in a cubic, you know, in a mouse brain that's uh, roughly, a, it's a little bit less than a square centimeter. But now you're do dealing with, um, with uh, cerebral organoids that may be four millimeter or five millimeter um, in size with maybe a million neurons compared to in a mouse. A cortex, in an adult mouse, there are 14 million cortical neurons. Whole brain is 79 million. In human, uh, cortex is 16 billion, so it's almost a thousand times bigger. So now we're going from a human 16 billion cortical neurons to a mouse uh, 14 million, thousand times less. Now we're going to a million neurons. All right. So um, as, um, as Alison showed this morning, you wait for um, you know, roughly as long as it takes to grow a baby. You get these cells, they're, they're, they're sort of um, maturate. In other words, they, most of them have differentiated into, um, into their final cell stage of glutamergic or GABAergic or astrocytes or glia cells. The, as I said, they're several mil, uh, millimeter across. There are roughly a million of them. And both glutamergic and GABAergic, so you begin to see electrical activity of the sort that we saw, particularly electrical and, and, and synaptic activity. And, and the argument, as you heard uh, Alison make, and I believe it, so I've measured a local field potential all my life. I've, I've looked in detail at the paper. It looks, it looks, um, it looks um, uh, quite uh, remarkable. Certain aspects of it look quite remarkable, close to uh, what's called tras discontinu, uh, which is sort of birth suppression pattern, right, where you get this activity and then sort of uh, a silence. For you know, babies, preterm uh, human babies, 25, 30, 32 weeks or so. So this is the picture that um, that he showed you. So now the question is: So we're dealing dealing with adult level EG. Here we have preterm neonatal EG. One question, of course, which uh, when which we don't have the exact answer for: When were you first conscious? You, you, you. When were you first conscious in your life? 
Not well, what's your first memory of it, because we know we all have uh, infantile amnesia, childhood amnesia, so we don't remember anything really before an age two or something like that. But what was your first moment when you were actually conscious? It's not easy to ascertain. Most people believe it's when you exit the birth canal, you get this massive surge of noradrenaline, you cry, you have to breathe by yourself, you know, it's cold, it's outside, there are all these lights and sound, you cry. Many people believe, um, based on animal models, that that when, the, when you sort of first wake up and become, um, and become conscious, but it's difficult to know. Of course, when you ask mom, you get a high-confidence answer. But, you know, I'm not going to argue with mom. Um, so now, so, so, so now what we need, so we, we can proceed now, well, we can argue in two ways. A, we can say, were we to do this analysis on cerebral organoids, what would come out? So it's, I, th- I mean, I've seen there, there's some figures in the, uh, because it is a multi-unit array, in principle you can do this at different, um, at different points in this uh, multi-unit array. So in principle you can compute this already now this measure, this uh, PCI or variance of this measure, lempel if there's no reason why you can't right now compute it for your brain organoids. And so then the question is, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, what happens if this brain organoid now or in one year or in two years or in three years when they're bigger and, and badder and, and more, more differentiated, what happens if it shows uh, by this measure a high complexity commensurate with the complexity of, let's say, an adult when there's no doubt that they're conscious? What, what, what do we do then? That's one way to proceed, and I think we, we should proceed, and we, we are proceeding. There are many people who are interested in this. The other way to proceed is to, um, is to think about theories. What, you know, ultimately, we don't just want empirical evidence for consciousness or not, or where it is, and who generates it, which, which, uh, which neural actors are responsible for it, but we want to have a fundamental scientific understanding uh, for, uh, for, the, for what are the factors that enable consciousness, how does it tie in with our with our view of the rest of the world, particularly with physical laws like quantum mechanics, general relativity, because those are mute with respect to consciousness, right? Quantum mechanics, relativity is no consciousness. Periodic table, consciousness is mentioned. ATGC, consciousness is mentioned. But here we are. We have, we have conscious states, so we have to deal with that. So there are two big uh, uh, theories that are currently being discussed in the field. One is Global Neuronal Workspace by Stan DeHaan and, and Jean-Pierre Changeux, and the other one that I'm, partial, that I'm uh, uh, favorably inclined to and help contribute is Integrated Information Theory by, by Giulio Tononi. He's a psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. At, uh, he's the chief architect of this in, uh, in Madison. So without going into the details, again, that would take uh, several days, so it says it's a, it's a fundamental theory. It starts with phenomenology and then proceeds to, um, to, uh, to ask what is the, uh, the character of the neural mechanism that has to, that has to uh, um, express this uh, phenomenological content of any, uh, of any one experience. And ultimately it says consciousness is, intrinsic, is sort of maximal intrinsic causal power of any system upon itself. I know it sounds like mamu jamu to you, just put like that. It is, however, a notion that can be put to mathematics, any one system, so any one mechanism, whether it's a brain with neurons or whether it's a transistor gate or, it's one, or whether it's any other mechanism, as long as you give me its transition probability matrix. And in other words, as long as you tell me if it's in this state, it has these probabilities to go into these states, then I can compute what's known as the intrinsic causal power of the system. And the theory just says that's what consciousness is. It, it precisely tells you that both the, 
the quantity of consciousness. This is what's known as integrated information by the Greek uh, uh, name phi. It's a number, it's a perfect number, it's not measured in bits, between zero and some, some indefinite upper bound. And that's the quantity of consciousness. And it also d- d- describes you what, what the qualia is. Is it the qualia of extendedness, of space, or pain, or pleasure, or smelling, or of eat, you know, tasting Nutella? So it makes uh, some particular predictions that are relevant for us here. So it says the neural correlates of consciousness are simply those structures that, that are a maximum of, of intrinsic causal power. So consciousness is a maximum of intrinsic causal power, and you can, in principle, measure that. If I know enough about neurons and the state they're in, in principle, I can measure that. In practice, I have to do approximation because I have to look at, I have to look, consider all possible subsets of all possible neural mechanisms in order to identify the maximum. So in practice, it's not easy, at least, at least right now. Uh, and the theory believes, and I think the evidence uh, uh, supports this, that finally all that you need in, in human-level consciousness, I don't, I'm not talking about bee consciousness or squid consciousness that didn't evolve with the, uh, with the cortex, but let's say mammalian-level consciousness, what you need for our experience, you just need cortex. So you need a cortical sheet with, as long as that's properly suffused and activated by, you know, by the various factors and by, by you, you know, noradrenaline and oxytocin and all those other things that we need, you, this thing will have high uh, causal power, will, will have experience. Now, the exact content of what it's experience, you know, whether it's space or pain or pleasure, whatever, that really depends on the exact wiring. So it really harkens back to Müller's uh, mid-19th century uh, um, uh, idea of specific nervous energy, uh, that what makes visual experience visual and different from auditory experience, different from pain experience, is ultimately the, 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 the specific different types of, of wiring that are in that particular uh, piece of brain that gives right, that's associated with or that constitutes the feeling of pain or pleasure or seeing, etc., and so the, the theory said as these um, cerebral organoids become more differentiated, particularly in the synaptic structure, as they, for example, grow just like in sensory cortex, neighborhood grid-like architecture, right, where you, you're very strongly connected to all your neurons in your, in your local neighborhood and then less strongly connected to the next one. And, you know, as the distance increases, you become less and less spatially connected. That, for example, would give rise to, space, or to an experience of spatial extendedness. You know, just space, even just empty space, just staring at a black screen, which is incredible rich, because you have already just this empty screen. You have left, you have right, you have up, you have down, you've got close by, you've got neighborhood relationship, you've got distance, right? You've got overlapping circle. All of that is already inherent in the in an experience of um, of um, of pure space. And this structure doesn't necessarily have to have sensory input or motor output. We don't at night when we dream. You know, our brains is, um, is, um, is shut off. So, in fact, the theory makes this interesting distinction. So if you, and people often confuse this, so I, I speak a lot to AI people, and uh, people in the AI field routinely confuse intelligence and consciousness. They're really very different things. Intelligence, ultimately, it's about the ability to rapidly adapt to new sensory motor environments, to learn from them, um, and to generalize from them. 
Um, consciousness is, 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 is experience, is, is feelings, is something conceptually at least very different from, from intelligence. And we always lived in a world over the last billions of years where as the complexity of the nervous systems increased, you get increasing intelligence and certainly also an increase in the amount of level of consciousness or the, 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 sort of the, um, the different conscious experiences that these creatures are capable on. So you, get, you go from a medusa low to a bee, a mill- million neurons to a mouse, 70 million neurons to a dog, 150 million, you know, and then you get to, to, to human level and you have sort of this monotonic relationship. As you get more intelligent, by some measure, uh, you become more conscious. But now we live with engineered artifacts. We live in a world where, at least in principle, you can build brain organoids. This is from Jürgen Knoblich, but the principle is the same. When in principle, if you build large enough cortical mats, if you make them large enough, you can get principal high level of consciousness, yet they don't do anything, particularly if they don't have sensory input or unless you connect them to motor output, like, uh, like Allison showed. Conversely, this theory also says you can get uh, machines that have very high level of intelligence. You know, uh, if you look at the latest alpha, alpha goes zero, alpha zero, uh, alpha, you know, starcraft, etc. You can get, in principle, very high intelligence, maybe even super intelligent, yet, yet no no uh, conscious awareness at all. And so I was going to leave you, and I was going to end and leave you with these open questions that are relevant to the, to the questions here we're discussing at the symposium. So how differentiated, let's say in terms of different cell types, we know from our human single cell, which is published in Nature last month, that any one cortical area in a human has roughly 100 different cell types most of which are related to cell types in, in mouse, incidentally. So 100 different cell types, 40 different excitatory ones, and f- roughly you know, 50 or so different, in, um, or 45 different inhibitory ones. Okay, so do we need that? You know, so as we get better with these stem cells and we get more of these cell types, how, de- how connected do these have to be? As I said, do you really want to get the detailed connectivity? For example, Shawnee Lay cells that go to the axon hillock of Martinotti cells that again have a very spin- um, specific postsynaptic target. And how large do these things have to be? A square centimeter? You know, a peanut butter cookie? A small, uh, you know, like a monkey brain, a pizza. How large do these have to become before they pass empirical test of um, of consciousness? Uh, Allison showed at the end sort of industrial attempts to grow this stuff. Right now, it's limited for various reasons, partly because we can't we can't vascularize them to these little lentil size things. But in principle. Surely, sooner or later, we'll, we'll overcome that limitation. We'll be able to grow indefinite, sort of carpets. Well, how big should they grow before we really worry? Should they grow as big as a pizza, as a, as a human brain? Um, then there's sort of a question, really, that are more philosophical or legal or ethical. Does the fact, so if, if it's true, if we just accept for the sake of argument, that following Thomas Nagel, it feels like something to be a cerebral organoid that's, w- that's well differentiated. Okay? So if it feels like something, does that automatically imply that it has some legal rights, some, mor- uh, some moral rights and or some legal rights? Or maybe only if it feels bad, maybe only the capacity to suffer. I mean, that's after all why we have, for example, why the first anti-animal cruelty acts were passed in England and then here in 1963, Animal Welfare Act, Primarily it was because we, we, we felt it was not morally justified anymore to have animals needless suffer. 
Um, and so is it maybe the capacity uh, to suffer? And then, of course, we have to, we have to ask um, empirically and also conceptually, well, if you have a cerebral organoid, what would it mean for a cerebral organoid to suffer? That's not an obvious question to answer. So these are some of the interesting uh, uh, questions that we have to, that the field has to grapple as, as we become. There's no doubt we're, we're going to be, become better through Al research like Allison and others. There's no question we'll become better and better at getting closer and closer to the, to the real stuff, you know, this human brain. And so we sooner or later, and I think now we have to start thinking about these questions actively. And I thank my, uh, my donor and benefactor who enabled, um, who sort of is funding all of us. And with that, I, uh, I thank you for your attention.